0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. We're continuing today in our walk through Genesis, and our preacher today is going to be Matt Gonzalez. If you don't know Matt, he has been a seminary intern with us for the past year and this summer. He uh, is doing both communications and family ministry and just got back from a one week trip to camp yesterday. <laughs> so we welcome him back. Our passage today is in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31 through chapter 30, verse 24. And you'll find that on your sermon notes. Because it's such a long passage, we're going to read just a portion of that, verses 14 through 24. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that it is true. And we pray for Matt today as he preaches and brings you his word. And please open our ears and give us understanding as he walks us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Oh, there we go. Yeah, so thank you so much, Craig. Like he said, I just got back from a week at Falls Creek. Anyone else come to Falls Creek with us in here? There we go. They're too tired to be excited. Um, Yeah, so if my voice decides to jump ship halfway through the sermon, I apologize. I'm going to do my best to keep him with us. Um, Yeah, like Craig said, I have been a seminary intern, and um, I'm on staff currently doing communications and different things. But some of you may not know, I am also an avid movie nerd. I don't know if that's common knowledge, particularly uh, the Marvel Universe, so Iron Man, Captain America, all of, all of those guys are very dear to me. Uh, it's, I you know it's full of epic battles and all these crazy powers and, and cities getting destroyed and no one seems to care and it's just awesome. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why it, back in 2014 when Marvel actually announced one of their new projects, I was really, really, really skeptical This movie was going to be something odd, something uh, completely different from what they'd attempted before. It was going to be about a ragtag crew from space who were saving the galaxy together. And I really wasn't sold on it. Like, it didn't, the soundtrack was from the 70s and 80s. It was weird. I I didn't know what it was going to be. And and the the movie was going to focus on this broken, divided crew of people. Here's the starting lineup, so we're all on the same page. First, there's a guy who's been kidnapped from Earth in the 1980s who's just totally emotionally messed up. There's uh, the daughter of the literal main villain of the entire uh, Marvel Universe. There's an equally angry, messed up, shirtless guy who doesn't understand social norms at all. Uh, A surgically altered raccoon and a literal tree. A literal tree. It's not exactly the most heroic crew. Can we agree? But as I watched the movie, I was blown away. They fought constantly. They made constant mistakes. And literally any chance that they could, they fumbled the ball. They just did. And they managed to hurt each other at every step. But they also stuck together, which was pretty powerful. And in the climax, the big final fight of the movie, they somehow managed to fight and beat their villain, which is impressive. And when asked in amazement by the villain who they are, They answer confidently, we're the guardians of the galaxy. And it was awesome. I was that weirdo who was like standing in the theater like, yeah, like let's go. Because this crew of misfits had been made into something greater, something bigger than themselves. And that image of a a really messed up and, and really sinful group of people hurting each other as they're drawn along a path and built into something greater stuck with me because it's Powerful. But in the midst of such divisiveness came something so much greater. And while it may not have any talking trees or angry raccoons, what we see in our text today is actually not too different of a picture. It's the picture, the image of a divided, a broken group of people being bound together and forged into something greater than themselves, God's people. And where sin divides God is going to do something big. Our sermon in a sentence this morning is going to help us understand what that is as we study through this together. Here it is for us. God is making a holy nation out of sinful people. He's making a holy nation out of sinful people. Now, we're going to be unpacking that together. And when we approach this passage, let's be honest, there's one side of it that's going to really jump off the page at us because the division and the destruction of sin is on full display. It's just all over the page. It's important for us to see that because it's going to help us understand what's really going on. And as we do so, I want us to begin through the lens of these sister wives that we find in the text. They're going to help us root our understanding in the passage and contextualize this a little bit for us. So, that said, let's look at verse 31 of chapter 29 together. Look there with me. Here we see our first big idea, that sin divides us. Sin divides us. Verse 31 says, When God saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel's womb was barren. So when we arrive at our text, we're actually jumping into the middle of an ongoing story. And I want to acknowledge right off the bat how weird this is for us today, right? It's not a normal situation that we would see day to day. Because there's this guy who's married to multiple wives who are sisters, and more wives are actually going to be added to that number as we go along. But in the context of the day, in the pagan culture, that's actually pretty normal to have multiple wives and and to have sons through that. So that said, uh, this is people operating within their culture, so it's a little different for us. But it's also a perfect example of what happens when sinful people behave sinfully. We're going to see that this holy God is dealing with an extremely sinful people. For context, remember with me that Laban, the father of Leah and Rachel, uh, what we've just studied through, has in essence set his children up for failure. There's this whole democle- will with will, will Jacob marry Leah, who he does not love, or will he marry Rachel, who he does love, and it's like a bad, tragic soap opera. The entire thing is, is just rough. And through a scheme, he actually ends up married to both women. And our text begins by letting us know exactly how well that worked out. Leah is not loved. In fact, she's hated. And that begins a very strange and very long cascade of awful decisions that are going to happen here. So Rachel, the sister of Leah, sees that she is not having children. But Leah, who is the hated one, is having children. And so she gets desperate and she goes to her husband Jacob in chapter 1 of verse, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 30. Look there with me. She actually tells him give me children or I shall die, right? Seems drastic. A little drastic. But we also need to take a step back and look at culture here in the day. Because there isn't any social security. There's no welfare for them in their culture. Women actually are the lowest rung of society. They can't own property. They have no independence, they are completely bound and wound up in, do they have a man in their world? They're extremely socially and economically vulnerable. And the thing was that a husband would look out for them during his lifetime, and then sons would look out for them when the husband died. It was literally life and death. And her response, give me children or I shall die, is incredibly revealing of her desperation. And then her loving husband, Jacob, gives her this response. He says in chapter 2, verse 30, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Loving. Jacob angrily tells Rachel in the midst of his outburst that he's not the one who can give her children. That it's God who blesses or withholds children, which is true, but it's a cutting remark. And then Jacob's silent throughout the entire rest of our text. Which shows us he's idle. And he's indifferent happening. But as a husband, Jacob was a lifeline for his wives. He was a lifeline. He was charged with looking out for them and loving each one of them well. Yet we know that he doesn't love one. And his anger is actually kindled, as the text says, against the other that he does love. And then he's silent. He's idle the entire rest of the time. It's a massive, sinful failure on his part. And in the face of that failure, Rachel gets an idea. She says, what if I give my servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and she can have children for me? That would have also been a normal practice in the pagan culture of the day. It's a way to have a surrogate mother of a sort. And if you're getting deja vu with that, it's because we've seen that before. That same line of thinking from Genesis 18 with Hagar and Ishmael, when Abraham and Sarah could not have children, and so Hagar was given to Abraham. And just like happened with their grandparents, Bilhah is given to Jacob, and she begins to have children. But we need to take an aside real quick to acknowledge the fact that these are not actually Bilhah's kids in the social structure of the day. So in their culture, they had tiers of wives, which is a strange concept for us. So multiples, but there are some who are above others. And Bilhah is Rachel's servant, which means she is far below Rachel on the wife spectrum. And so any children that she has will actually be counted socially to Rachel, who is her primary wife. And so this woman who is a servant has been given over to her husband, something that we have no idea if she had any voice in at all. She's not only been given like an object, but she is used to have children with and doesn't even have the dignity of having them counted as hers. It's horrifying. And as if it could get even more messed up, Leah then jumps up and gets the same idea. What if I can get my servant Zilpah and do the same thing? And so she does. And Jacob takes her and begins to have children with her. And sin begets sin. It's this messed up situation, friends. us side over. We get a fascinating instance following that in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 30. Look with me there. As if the situation could get more complex. Craig read this earlier for us. Leah's son Reuben is going out in the field and he finds mandrakes. Once again, this is something that we can easily read right past in our day and age. In the culture of the day, there was a superstition that mandrake root would actually increase your fertility, your ability to have children. And so what we've got here is Rachel clinging to a cultural superstition in order to give her what God has denied her. And then Leah twists the situation once again for her own benefit. The discord is so apparent in verse 15, where Leah says, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? And She questions, Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? So following in what can really only be seen as an act of prostitution, Rachel sells Jacob's love in exchange for a shot at manipulating God's promises. His promise of a people, of descendants, a land, and a great blessing. All the while we are left wondering what in the world is going on. It's easy for us today to point fingers. These people are sinning in the context of their culture. How often... we do the same how often do we sin in the context of our culture today we pursue career and success and money and status and popularity and so much else in an attempt to squeeze just a little bit more out of God's promises just as they're sinning within their culture so are we and these sisters who share flesh and blood, are now divided. And these servants are brought in and turned against each other. And even these sons are pulled onto teams. And God's people have been divided by sin. We as readers should be wondering why. Here's the problem. Kids, lean in here. I don't want us to miss this. This is a big part of what's going on. Here's the reality of it. The problem that is at play here is that Rachel and Leah and Jacob and everyone else in our text have a fundamental, a a deep misunderstanding of God's promises and his grace. They've bought into the belief that God's grace is limited, that his power and his desire to love people is somehow like pie. And that if he gives grace to someone, then he must deny it to someone else. But in fairness, that does seem to be the story so far. Remember with me that Ishmael was excluded, but Isaac was blessed. Esau was excluded, and Jacob was blessed. It seems to be the pattern so far. And so these women, not trusting in God's promises, but looking at past history here, hoping that their sons would not be excluded or left out, They act sinfully in hopes of earning and achieving God's promises for them. But friends, let me reiterate that God's promises are not like pie. They're not. And the blessing given to Reuben would not mean that Zebulun is excluded. There is no word spoken from the Lord here about the older ruling over the younger or one being counted out. All of these mothers and their sons would have a chance to share in God's promises together. God is doing something different. What we, as the reader, must understand is that God is building a family that's completely different than all of the others on the earth. He's building a people who don't look like the nations around them. And he's giving them an inheritance that is profoundly distinct, profoundly different from what would have been normal in their day. But Without a clear understanding of God's grace, we completely lose sight of that. One of the deepest tragedies in the midst of this sinful section of Scripture is that there is a deep, a profound forgetfulness that's at play. Not only is there this great misunderstanding of God's grace and how it works, but the wives of Jacob are forgetting the most crucial thing about their family. They are a family, the family. They are in the family of promise, God's people. They're not enemies. Our section of text makes that, or our next section of text makes that so clear. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 30 where we'll see our second big idea here. That God's promises unite us. God's promises unite us. Now I want to change our lens. So we've been looking through the lens of the sister wives. Now I want to look through the lens of the sons and the descendants that would come from them. And I want to direct our eyes to the beginning of chapter 30 here in verse 1. So Rachel does go to Jacob. And here's where we find the glue that binds this whole sinful mess together. The division that we see all over this text is done with a blind eye toward the truth that is in the middle of it. It's right there. Jacob, who is the son who has received the promises All of these people are in the family line of promise. God draws this out so much through the text here. Look with me. We're going to do a flyover of verses 1 through 20 here. Uh, We're going to notice an interesting phrase as we do this. Look with me in verse 5. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Verse 7 at the end. Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a son. Verse 10, and Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob, a son. Verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob, a son. Verse 17, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a fifth son. And then in verse 19, once again, she bears Jacob, a son. Do you see it? Jacob's not just a dad. He's not just a guy. He's not just the tag that's there. His name there is intentional. It's on purpose. And it's to remind us to point our eyes to the greater truth that's at play here. As we've mentioned before, the question that's been running throughout this whole section of Scripture, from Abraham's sons to Isaac's sons, is who is getting left out? Who is being excluded from the promises of God? With Ishmael and Isaac, there was the promise that God would give a promised son, so Ishmael was excluded. And when it came time for Isaac to have sons, the Lord spoke a prophecy that Jacob would rule over Esau. And so once again, a son is excluded. But look with me at the beginning of our text, at the end of chapter 29. There is no statement there that one would be excluded. There is no motion that all of a sudden one of these sons will be counted as the blessed one and all the others would be left in the wind. And that's incredibly important for us to understand that because what's at stake is more than just inheritance. It's not just about goats and sheep to pass on to their sons, which would be important. And the question is if Judah or Reuben or Simeon or all the rest would get to share in God's eternal promise and blessing something bigger at stake none of these sons are said to be counted out none God is beginning doing something different here Though the sinful behavior of their mothers would not reflect it he's at work this is God beginning finally After so many years of waiting to see it begin to be fulfilled, this is God starting to fulfill his promise to his servant Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. these sons were in for something beyond their wildest dreams because each one would be blessed. And for the members of the original audience, the Jews in the wilderness who had just left Egyptian slavery... They were part of the expansion of God's people that had happened here. And they would identify themselves by their ancestors. They were the 12 tribes of Israel, of of Jacob. They were the tribes of Reuben, of Levi, of Simeon, of Dan, and all the rest. God is growing his people into this great nation. This is where it happens. This is ground zero. The table's set. And for those who were in those tribes, the original audience, looking back, the question that would have been so prevalent is why the division? Why are God's people broken against each other? If they would have understood that they are all God's people, and what they would read here would be a shocking display of who they came to be, how they came to be, the sinful origins of their people. It's just like we walk through glaring off the pages, the unity, the, the oneness, the line of promise in the face of sinful division. And friends, where sin divides, God's promises unite. Just as a misunderstanding of God's amazing grace causes sinful division as we try to carve out a corner of what's ours, a healthy understanding of God's grace And his powerful promises allows us to see a bigger picture. That it is not based on us. Because what should be so obvious is, and what would have been so obvious to the original audience, is that would it have been left up to Leah or Bilhah or Rachel or Zilpah or Jacob, even to any of these sons, all that would be left is sinful division and brokenness. But what we and the original audience so clearly get to see is that it is not the sinful actions of men and women that accomplish God's purposes. It's not the wrestling of two sisters for their husband's love that make God's promises work. In fact, this story could almost be read as what not to do to be God's people. And if you don't want to receive God's promises, here's what you do. But praise God, that is not how it works. God is the one who sees his promises fulfilled. He is the one who is unified, creating a people despite the sinful actions of sinful people. And he is the unifier. A proper understanding of his grace teaches us that there is always room for another at the table. That those who are in God's promises, who are in God's family, are brothers and sisters, and they're one people. And when we begin to understand and have a healthy grasp on how God's grace works, things begin to fall into place for us. We have to cling to the hope of God's promises and the unity that is brought in them, not in the division of sin. But here's the reality for us even though we can clearly see that sin divides and God's promises unite his people in our text, we also may have a poor understanding of God's promises. And miss that even in our day, He is doing something greater. And he's leading us to understand that He is growing His family and setting things up for a greater purpose. Which brings us to our third and final big idea that God is expanding His people, He's expanding His people. I want to shift our eyes to look, yes, through the lens of the original audience, but I want to look at this from our eyes today. Particularly, I want to look at verse 22 to 24 of chapter 30. Look there with me. After all this sinfulness and all of this harshness has happened, after the missing of the unity that's found in the promises of God, we see this in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said God has taken away my reproach and she called his name Joseph saying may the Lord add to me another son the Lord remembers Rachel he sees her he opens her womb and he gives her a son and it's a son who's there to take away her reproach her shame and she calls him Joseph now, looking forward for us, we're about to be learning a lot about Joseph over the next several weeks and months. Because God is going to raise this son above the others and use him powerfully for the rest of the book of Genesis. This son who's greater than all his brothers. But We must remember that even in that, that the other sons are still counted in the promise. They are not excluded, though one is raised over them. In the midst of the sinfulness and the divisiveness in our text, we can so easily miss that it's God who is growing a people, that it is God who is fulfilling his promises. and He is the one who is seeing it done. He is the one who opens wounds and the one who gives life. God is moving and shaking and doing incredible things for the sake of his name and to fulfill his promises to his servant, Abraham. And in a powerful twist, a flip of what we've seen before, the promise passes not to one son, not even a special son, but to many. With the promise that many will be added to them, and they will become a great nation, bound together in the promises of God. That's not where our passage ends. We're almost rolling home. This is so good. Kids, kids, lean in again. This is, this is so important. If you, if you miss everything else, we've got to get this. I want to look at the last statement of our passage this morning out of the mouth of Rachel. In the midst of this whole text about God expanding the family, there's this giving of another son who takes away Rachel's reproach, who takes away her shame, and then there's this statement in verse 24 from her. May the Lord add to me another. Now here, yes, Rachel is asking for another literal physical son. Yes, absolutely. And even in that, we see that she is still holding on to a smaller promise of God in light of the bigger promise that he has actually given. Just as she and Leah have done for this whole passage. But friends, there is a greater promise that's fulfilled in that prayer. The way these sisters would have understood God's promise to give them offspring would have been that they would have many sons That they'd have all of these sons, and their sons would have sons. But Galatians 3.16 helps us flip that idea on its head and gives us some incredible insight here. It tells us this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ there is a bigger promise at play. And our eyes are meant forward, or meant to look forward, not to Joseph, not even to Benjamin, who's another son that God would give to Rachel. But our eyes are to point to a son who is greater. A son not from Rachel, actually, but from the line of Judah, the son of Leah. It seems odd, but remember the bigger picture that's at play. This is about the people of God, not just Rachel and her sons. There's a son who would come who would be greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac, greater than Jacob, than the older brothers or the younger brothers, or even Joseph, the special son. He would be the son of God himself, Jesus Christ, born from the line of Judah. And Jesus would step into a world divided by sin, crushed by shame, and ripped apart by brokenness. He would bring the light of God's promises into a dying world. He would come and die on a cross and rise again to to pay for all the sins of mankind. And in doing so, this this is exciting, in doing so, he would fulfill God's promise in Genesis 3. That one would come who would crush the head of the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve. One would come to crush the head of the serpent God's promise in Genesis 12 that through Abraham's line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he would make a new people for his name's sake and for the glory of his Father in heaven. And that all who have faith in him would be welcomed in as sons of the promise. With sin no longer dividing, sin no longer separating, and sin no longer keeping us away from one another. Because we are one people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the gift with that, friends, is that it no matters what blood li- it no longer matters what bloodline you come from, what bloodline I come from. Are we Jews? Are we from the line of Rachel or, or Leah? Our blood no longer matters. The question is have you been washed in his blood? 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that those who are in Christ, once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you would not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that hope, with the unity that we are called to? I want to challenge us quickly to two things before we prepare to transition to a time of worship with prayer and music. Number one, quickly, is we must strive for unity in the spirit. We cannot live with a poor understanding of how God's grace works. But as we have been given this abundant, this amazing grace, so we should show grace to those around us. We must strive for unity with those who are in Jesus, our brothers and sisters in the church. That's a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Friends, you and I are called to care about who is in the family. Because we're too often focused on who is excluded, who is counted out, who's left out, who shouldn't be here. And in so doing, we can even begin to exclude members of it. And we look at social status and cultural background and race or political opinions or different beliefs on different things. And we begin to push people to the sidelines. And by their presence, we can feel jealous, threatened even. But God's people are about who is in the family. Not trying to find reasons that someone else should be out Friends, we must remember that God's blessing to someone else does not mean that he is taking blessing away from you. His grace is an ocean. There is always more. And with that, we see our second application here quickly. Number two, friends, we must share the gospel. We must share the gospel so that the family of God might expand and that people might experience his grace in his promises. We as God's people have been given the mission, the task of working to expand the family of God. In our text, they did that by having children. In our day, the tool that is given to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we share it. He's given us the mission of taking the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth to our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that we are around every day and to nations on the other side of the world who have never heard the name of Jesus and everyone in between we are his messengers we're the messengers of the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God is building a new people the beautiful thing is that even in that the spirit of God is at work opening eyes to the truth, giving life, he is still the one who sees his promises fulfilled. And As we work together in unity, to take the name of Jesus to those who have not heard, we must fight in the power of the Spirit not to let sin divide us, but to stand together as brothers and sisters united in Christ Jesus. As members of God's family, we must remember always the truth that remains for us today. It was true in our text, to the original audience, and it will be till kingdom come. Our sermon in a sentence again here. God is making a holy nation out of sinful people, including you and me. And striving to remember that and working in the gift of the Holy Spirit, we must remember that God is at work. And what we're reading in our text is the beginning of the family that you and I are part of in Christ Jesus, the family of promise, the story of Genesis, and in truth, all of Scripture is the growth and expansion of that people. You and I are blessed even now in Christ. If you're not part of that family, I would urge you, repent, turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus who is the great unifier, the great uniter. There is grace in him beyond what you could possibly imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus. Thank you for your work uh, through the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you that you have given us unity in the promises that you've given god would we trust always in you and not lean into the division of sin would we trust in the work of your spirit and not try to strive to earn your promises as if we ever could father would you give us grace every day to trust you more and more we love you and we pray all these things in jesus name amen
0: if you like what you've heard or want to find out more information please visit our website at MyMillCreek.com.